Good afternoon. Welcome to Laguna Presbyterian Church and this special seminar where we're hosting Dr. Ron White. And thank you for coming on this crowded, warm Laguna afternoon. Ron White has uh, been recognized all over the country as one of our outstanding historians. Um, he is mostly known for his work with Abraham Lincoln, but most recently his work with Ulysses S. Grant, and we'll hear about Grant tonight. He has some surprising things to say about Grant. And as I said this morning, one of the important things I believe that Ron contributes, unique in all, among all historians that work with these two men, is he digs in deep into the character of the leader. And uh, if you are a fan at all of some of the current writers like um, Brooks, David Brooks, then you know that character counts. Um, and then in our day and age, in our country, leadership with the kind of character that knows how to balance through the tough stuff of life is hard to find particularly when it's related to politics. So we have two examples in political leadership of Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, where they learned the art of being human and working on good humanity in the midst of tough politics. We are glad to have Ron White here, and um, he's going to speak for a period of time, and then he's gonna be open to questions so we can have some interaction. And then we'll see uh, if we get so tired, it's just time to go home, okay? Ron, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Thank you very much. It was wonderful to be here this morning, and welcome to those who are here for the first time this afternoon. We sold out all the books, but what we're going to do is back at the book table, there's a way that you can sign up with your name and any way you want it personalized. And what we'll do is we'll order the books, bring them here to the church, and I will send book plates, I've done this in other places, to, to Josephine, <laughs> with appreciation, Ron White, and so you can get those books. It may take a while, but I hope you'll think about doing that. Whenever I have spoken, people will often ask the question, and what is your next book? So when I finished Abraham Lincoln, that question was asked. My editor at Random House told me that I was now a presidential historian, and I said, I am? <laughs> so he said, what's your next presidential historian biography? As Gareth said in his introduction, I really believe that I want to try to tease out what I call the faith story. It's often almost totally overlooked in the writing of American biography. A few years ago, I had lunch in Philadelphia with David Eisenhower, the grandson of Dwight D. Eisenhower. David teaches communication at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. And he told me he was not at all pleased with the biographies of his grandfather. I said, well, why? Because he said they don't tell the faith story. Did you know that Dwight Eisenhower was baptized while he was president of the United States of America? In a Presbyterian church. In a Presbyterian <laughs> church? Hey! He had been raised in a kind of offshoot of the Mennonite tradition, like so many of us. He kind of wandered away from that. But he came back to that. Did you know that when he retired, he was very active in the Gettysburg Presbyterian Church, I know because I've spoken there, or that he was extremely active in the Palm Desert Presbyterian Church. You won't find any of that in any of the biographies of Dwight Eisenhower, sadly. We miss the whole faith story. So my editor said, well, why don't you think of writing a biography, therefore, of uh, Dwight Eisenhower? <laughs> Maybe Woodrow Wilson, possibly Jimmy Carter, all three of whom have profound faith stories. But as we were thinking about this, he said, well, what about Ulysses S. Grant? He said, it's coming up to the 150th commemoration of the Civil War. Don't you think Grant is due for an upgrade? 
<laughs> so I wondered, was there a faith story here? The, Eisen, the Eisenhower and Lincoln stories are Presbyterian stories. This is a Methodist story. And my new and next biography, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, the hero of Little Round Top at Gettysburg, the 32-year-old Bowdoin College professor with absolutely no military training, the governor said, I will make you colonel. He said, I don't deserve that rank. Do not give me that rank. Let me start lower, and perhaps I will rise to believe that I can accept it. On the second day at Gettysburg, he and his 20th Maine were defending the far left line of the Union Army, a critical position. They had run out of ammunition. They ran out of ammunition. And as the 15th Alabama swept up that hill at Little Round Top, he said, fix bayonets, and they charged down and routed the Confederates. Now Little Round Top is the most visited place in Gettysburg. The funny part of it is that Jeff Daniels plays uh, Chamberlain in the movie uh, Gettysburg. So people in Gettysburg, tourists are walking around and they're saying, well, I want to get a picture of Chamberlain. Oh, I think I'll get a picture of Jeff Daniels instead. <laughs> <laughs> so how to introduce someone who is not well known? When I speak to audiences about Lincoln, I can presume that most everyone has the basic outline of the Lincoln story and appreciation of Lincoln in all the C-SPAN presidential historian surveys. Lincoln is always number one, always number one. The last thing an author writes is the introduction or the preface. How could I introduce this man who I knew most people do not know? The man of middle height, accompanied by a young boy, arrived at the crowded Baltimore and Ohio Railroad station in Washington on a cold, crisp morning. It was March 8, 1864. He hailed a carriage and asked the driver to take them to Willard's Hotel. The Willard is still there. At the northwest corner of Pennsylvania Avenue and 14th Street, only two blocks from the White House, the man and boy stepped from the carriage and walked directly to the front desk. The man, 42 years old, and wearing a travel duster, overcoat, trench coat, asked for a room. The clerk sniffed brusquely. Did not the visitor know that in wartime Washington, few rooms were available, especially at Willard's, the finest hotel in the nation's capital? The clerk dallied, then informed the travelers he could give them a small room on the top floor. That would be fine the man said softly. The clerk asked the guest to sign the hotel register. When the clerk turned the register around and read the signature, U.S. Grant and Son, Galena, Illinois, he turned pale. He gasped, General Grant, why didn't you tell me who you were? And would you like in your own imagination to think of the modern sports stars, politicians, entertainment stars who would have said, don't you know who I am? That's the very last thing that Grant would ever have said. This man of such humility, the word in the 19th century was self-effacement, never putting himself forward. Peering more closely, the clerk could now see that underneath the duster, mostly hidden, was the blue uniform of a Union officer. Grant was the highest ranking general in the U Union Army. He almost always wore a private's uniform almost always wore a private's uniform. He had seen, the clerk had seen the posters portraying the hero of the West everywhere in Washington. Suddenly attentive, he blurted out, well, I will assign you parlor suite, the best, parlor six, the best suite in the hotel. The same suite Abraham and Mary Lincoln stayed in when they arrived in Washington. Now that he knew who was standing in front of him, he handed Grant a sealed envelope. The general opened it, finding an invitation to join President Lincoln at a reception that evening at the White House as the guest of honor. Lincoln and Grant had never met. Because he had not served in the Eastern Theater of the Civil War, a curiosity about Grant punctuated conversations everywhere. Many knew the outline of his rise to fame, but still they wondered out loud, who was he? How had he succeeded when so many Union generals had failed? Why had the president elevated him to the position of lieutenant general, the first man since George Washington to hold that rank? Why had Lincoln tapped him to come from the Western theater to lead all the Union 
armies. If you go to the U.S. Grant historic site just outside of St. Louis, where he met Julia, and where they ultimately bought the family home, you will find a wonderful but small museum. It's housed in two horse barns. Grant was this tremendous horseman that he built, he thought, for his retirement. And my friends there in the Park Service say that when people come to visit this, they all knew almost nothing about Grant. Many don't know that he was even president of the United States. If they know anything, they think they know that he was a drunkard, <laughs> that he was a butcher, and that he was involved in scandals, and that's all they know. And we will talk about briefly, quickly, in a little bit, how could Grant rise to such fame and fall so far? I wanted you to see as you walked in this remarkable medallion. This was in the, done in the 1870s. Father is George Washington. Martyr is Abraham Lincoln. Defender is Ulysses S. Grant. These were the three great Americans people believed in the 19th century. In the year 1900, Teddy Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt was asked, who are the greatest Americans? He said, greatest of the living dead are George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Ulysses S. Grant. Roosevelt went on to say of second rank, of second rank are Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton, and Andrew Jackson, of second rank. That's the way Roosevelt thought about the three great Americans. So what I want to do is to introduce you to Grant, tell three episodes from his life that I think illustrate why in our theme of leadership, why he is such a great leader. But I had to confront some pieces of a puzzle before I began. And the first piece of the puzzle was I thought I knew something about Grant because obviously he had to be in my Lincoln biography. But I had to recognize after about six months, nine months of doing my research, I didn't really know the man. I didn't really know him. And then I discovered that most Americans did not really know him. Secondly, I decided in this biography to tell the story of the young Ulysses S. Grant. Biographies are popular today, but most of them, if you've read them, I've read them, they skip rather quickly over the early years of a person's life. Think of your own lives. What, who were you at 16, 18, 20, 22? Surely you're a different person today, but how were those years so formative? Well, I take my cue from Grant. Grant said, I do not read biographies because they do not tell me about the formative period of a person's life. I want to know who the man was as a boy. We would say who the woman was as a girl. So I spent a lot of time on this. When I first sent this out to a few readers, they said, do you really want to spend all this time on Grant's youth? Don't you want to get on with the story? I spent one week at West Point because I believe this is so central. One of the great moments that I've experienced in my life was last April 25. For the first time ever, a statue to Ulysses S. Grant was raised at West Point. It was the most incredible experience. We were all there. All the other great generals are there. Eisenhower and other generals such as Patton. Grant was never present. Robert E. Lee is everywhere at West Point. And he should be in a sense. He was the commandant of West Point before the Civil War. And this was a magnificent ceremony when we dedicated this statue done by a California sculptor to Ulysses S. Grant. And they had an amazing ride by two horses, female horses, two cadets, female cadets, who rode by to recognize Grant and who he was. Another part of the piece of the puzzle was how do I understand the failures in Grant's life, the struggles in his life? He graduated from West Point, served in the war with Mexico with some distinction, came home, married Julia, was appointed to serve in both New York and Michigan, and then came out to the West Coast to protect the settlers coming to California and Oregon. Julia could not accompany him. She was pregnant with their first child. He comes out here. He's terribly lonely. I believe he falls into depression. I think he does fall into drinking as he misses her so much. 
And so he resigns his commission in the U.S. military so he can rejoin Julia and their family back in Missouri. He struggles very hard to, to make a living in what he's doing. He tries to be a farmer. There's a worldwide depression. He sometimes is reduced to riding into St. Louis and selling wood on the streets of St. Louis. Let's move to the second slide. The second slide illustrates how far he had fallen, but what his values were. In 1857, he was almost out of all the money that he had, and Christmas was approaching. What would he do? He wanted to give to Julia a Christmas gift. So he walked into a pawn shop. I found this at the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield. I found a pawn ticket. And he pawned his most prized possession, his gold watch, that he would buy a Christmas present for Julia, how far he had fallen. Well, the third part of the puzzle is Julia. We know, sadly, that we have not elevated and told the stories of women in American history as we should, and Julia's been part of that story that we have overlooked, diminished. She's a remarkable person. Girls did not receive very much education in the 19th century. She did. She was quite well-educated. She could speak some French. And they had this amazing marriage that came together. People would find them in the White House many, many years later, and they'd come upon them, and they were holding hands like two bashful lovers. I think it's one of the great marriages in American history. Well, after a, a little while of working on this, I have a friend uh, who's a Hollywood writer and director, and he said, Ron, this might make a good miniseries. Oh, did my ears perk up. <laughs> he said, why don't we get together? And as before we do, he said, I want you to think about what are some of the key qualities or key stories, key episodes in the Grant story that you think might make a, a six-edition miniseries? So we hadn't talked very long before. I said, I want to tell you about Julia, and I want to tell you about their marriage. This is so, and I noticed my friend's face begin to fall. I said, what? Oh, he said, a good marriage. That will never do in a television <laughs> miniseries. <laughs> I said, what? He said, no, that will never do. And I said, oh, what do you mean? Oh, he said, a television miniseries or a movie is all based on internal tension. I'd never heard that phrase before, internal tension. So a few months later, I sent him the first chapters of my grant biography, and he said, well, don't you see the internal tension? Oh, yes. Grant's family in Ohio were strongly anti-slavery. Julia's father owned 30 slaves. Grant's family refused to come to the wedding because he was marrying into a slaveholding family. Her father gave her four slaves as a wedding gift. We get married, do we not, at 18, 20, 22, 24, and we think it's only the two of us. No, 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 it's the in-laws also. <laughs> and he had to figure out how he was going to navigate his relationship with old man Grant. You know the story of Leah and Rachel in the Old Testament? When Grant comes back from the war with Mexico and asks once again for Julia's hand, he says to her, well, wouldn't you like to rather have, and he offers Grant the younger sister. <laughs> Grant says, what? <laughs> I, she's a very nice young girl, but Julia's the one I want to marry. So Grant had to figure out, and he does, at the end, Old man Grant lived in the White House for the last years of his life. He was a slavery, pro-slavery man originally. He was a processionist, but he became so admiring of his son-in-law. Finally, a piece of the puzzle was, is there a faith story here? All the Grant biographies that I read didn't seem to have a faith story. And then I discovered that there is a faith story. It's a Methodist faith story. When we ask the question, and Gareth talked about it again in the introduction this morning and this afternoon, what is the basis of the moral character of people? This is a very Methodist story. Methodists in the 19th century were kind of the, the sort of the poor cousins. They were not Presbyterians. They were not Episcopalians. They were people from the lower regions of society. But with that, they brought a great deal of a, pure, a sense of humility and Grant inherited that from his mother. 
One day, a correspondent came to the Grant home in Georgetown, Georgetown, Ohio, and said, well, you must be very proud of your son. She said, I'm proud of all my children. But she said, I'm not proud of any of them. I'm proud of the Creator. That's who I'm proud of. Well, that seemed a strange comment in the 21st century. It wasn't strange at all in the 19th century. She wanted to say, give credit to others. Grant would say to Sherman after he was elected president, you know, I didn't seek this office. I did not seek to become president. I only accepted the office because we had to preserve what had happened in the Civil War, and I guess I'm the person that has been pushed forward to do so. I never sought it. And that's what I find so attractive of Grant. Okay, let's look at three episodes. Grant, uh, in his difficulty, comes home in 1854 uh, to Missouri to be with Julia. He uh, tries his luck as a farmer. Nothing seems to work. And finally, in 1860, his father offers him a position in Galena, Illinois, in far northwest Illinois, underneath his younger brothers to work in a leather goods store that the family owns. How humiliating. But Grant, desperate to preserve, to protect, and provide for his family, accepts this position, and then the war breaks out. Grant had resigned his commission for seven years earlier, but he accepts a low-level position in Illinois, and very, very quickly he begins to rise. West Point did not really train people for military battle. It might seem strange in the 19th century. The largest army the United States had ever formed was 14,000 men in the war with Mexico. Grant would end up uh, superintending armies of hundreds of thousands of men. He begins to rise. He rises and is brought to the attention of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln had the habit of trying to meet the commanders to take the measure of them, but he couldn't meet Grant because Grant's way out west. So let's see the slide of Ulysses S. Grant. He's a small man. When he enters West Point, he's only five feet one and uh, about 110 pounds. In this photograph, he's five feet seven and about 135 pounds. It's a very, I think, iconic photograph of Grant at Cold Harbor. So as he rises through the ranks, wins the battles at Shiloh and then Vicksburg and then Chattanooga, Lincoln finally brings him to Washington and makes him commander of all the Union armies. There are five Union armies fighting in the eastern part of the country. Grant is in charge of all of them. You, uh, American armies do not march in the wintertime because of the, our weather. And so if you've ever been to where Washington crossed the Delaware, you will notice that climactic painting is because the British were totally surprised. You don't march on December 25 in the middle of ice and snow. You don't cross the Delaware River on December 25. And that's how Washington surprised the British and defeated them at both Trenton and Princeton. So finally, on May 4, 1864, Grant starts out on his campaign. He's riding this tall, 17 hands high Cincinnatus, his great horse. He starts out leading this huge army crossing the river into Virginia. He had received the command from Lincoln, but he hadn't received the command from the troops. You can be the president, you can be the pastor, you can be the president of a college, and the board of trustees might appoint you, but you have to receive the command of the people. Grant had not yet received that command. They were not sure this man from the West could lead them. They were taking a wait-and-see attitude. When they crossed into Virginia, they marched into what's called the wilderness. I believe in going to places. I'm concerned about young historians who think they can write history sitting in their offices and doing it online. You have to go there. So one of our renowned historians, Gary Gallagher, led me for two days walking where Grant walked and led in Virginia. The wilderness is a remarkable place. It's a forest only about five feet high of trees deeply compacted to each other, so much so that you could barely see the sunlight coming through at noon. Well, everything starts out and becomes badly mismanaged. Grant has a two-to-one advantage in men. He has a great advantage in horse 
cavalry. He has a great advantage in artillery. You can't use horses in a deeply compacted forest. You can't use artillery in a deeply compacted forest. Pretty soon, men begin to discover they didn't have the term yet, what they called friendly fire. They were actually killing each other as they shot all out of position. And then within several hours, nature took over and the forest caught fire and the forest began to burn and men were burned to death or they shot themselves before they would be burned to death. It was a terrible, terrible experience. And after two days, Grant has suffered almost 25,000 casualties. Just unbelievable what has happened to him. And so at the end of that second day, he's gathered in his, uh, his, his headquarters and a general rides in to say what the troops had been saying. The troops had been whispering to each other, you've, net, you've not met Bobby Lee. You've not met Bobby Lee. Shiloh is second string. Chattanooga is second base, second string also. You've not met Bobby Lee. Robert E. Lee was the great general who everybody admired. So a general walks, rides into Grant's camp. I know Lee's methods well by past experience. He will throw his whole army between us and the Rapidan River and cut us off completely from our communications. Horace Porter, who was Grant's aide and was our best memoirist of what took place under Grant's command, watched Grant, a man often called Grant the Silent, rise slowly from his haunches, stand up and say, oh, I am heartily tired of hearing about what Lee is going to do. Some of you seem to think he's suddenly going to turn a double somersault and land in our rear and on both of our flanks at the same time. Go back to your command and try to think what we ourselves are going to do instead of what Lee is going to do. Someone pointed out to me, this is Johnny Wooden's strategy. Don't think about what the other team is going to do. Just think about what we're going to do. That's what's really important. Well, later that evening, one of the senior war correspondents said, I'll give $1,000 for anyone who will get through to President Lincoln with what's going on, because the Confederates had cut all the lines of the telegraph. If you've seen the movie Lincoln, you will remember how Lincoln spent a lot of time in the telegraph office. This is the way in this new form of communication, he could stay in touch with what was happening, stay in touch with the conversation between his generals. While he was sitting in the telegraph office, Someone came up to him and said, uh, he was asked by a member of Congress, what about Grant's progress? And Lincoln replied, well, I can't tell much about it. You see, Grant has gone to the wilderness, crawled in, drawn in the ladder after him, pulled in the hole, and I guess we'll just have to wait till he comes out till we know what he's doing. <laughs> it was a funny relationship. I've been asked to speak at a college in Michigan in January, and Part of the assignment is to talk about the relationship between Grant and Lincoln. And Lincoln came to really trust Grant. And so Grant wanted, in very deferential quality, to share some of his plans with Lincoln. And Lincoln said, oh, don't, don't tell me what you're going to do. I can't keep secrets. I can't keep secrets. I trust what you're going to do, but don't tell me what you're going to do, because I can't keep secrets. <laughs> so Grant didn't tell him what he was going to do, but he wanted to keep him informed. So at that point, uh, young Henry Wing, 24 years old, stepped forward and said, I will try to get through. So he walked over to Grant and he said, is there anything that you want me to say to President Lincoln? And at first Grant wasn't quite sure what he wanted him to say, but then he said, please tell him this, there will be no turning back. Six words. There will be no turning back. Because what had happened in the Civil War was they'd fight these battles for two or three days and then disengage, deal with the wounded, get themselves ready, and they'd go again. Link Grant decided, we have the numerical superiority. I'm not going to turn back. I'm just going to keep going forward. I've become friends after the publication of this book with General David Petraeus. We've done three events together, including a convocation at West Point. We're going to do another event on Grant's birthday next April in New York City. And he will tell the West Point cadets, he's also a visiting professor at USC, he will tell persons there, 
Grant is the greatest American general. There is no comparison. He said, I read Grant's memoirs in preparing for the surge in Iraq. I talked with my generals in Iraq about Ulysses S. Grant. And part of the qualities is there will be no turning back. So Wing starts out and he quickly meets the Union sentries who say, you're never going to get through. Swallow that message that you've written down. And when you get to the Confederate sentries, tell them Robert E. Lee has just won a great victory in the wilderness and keep on going. So he does keep on going and he does get to President Lincoln. And when he gets there, this is the conversation. Lincoln turns to John Hay after he receives Wing's message and he says, how near we have been to this thing before and failed. I believe if any other general had been at the head of the army, it would have been on the other side of the Rapidan River. It is the dogged pertinacity of Grant that wins, the dogged determination. One reason the troops were distrustful was four times the Union Army had entered into Virginia and four times it had retreated in humiliation. And they were terribly worried this would happen a fifth time under Grant. It did not. Let's go forward with another slide. One of the most remarkable parts of this campaign is to watch walk down the Orange Pike Road to this junction. And if you turn left, you go retreating back towards Washington, D.C. If you turn right, you go towards Richmond. So the next morning, Grant got up and said to George Meade, who was com control com commander of the Army of the Potomac, we're going to march this evening, but I don't want you to give the order until tonight. At about 8 o'clock that night, he said, now you can give the order and the headquarters team began to march, and the word went out. Something is happening amidst the smoke and the fog, and the soldiers began to gather at this junction, and Grant is coming down that road on that tall 17 hands high horse, and he gets to this junction, and fortunately for us, there's a man standing there with pencil and paper, and he records what's happening. You can see it here, as Grant gets to that junction, whether he paused or not, he turns south. He turns towards Richmond. There will be no retreat. And the men throw their hats in the air and they begin to sing. It's a singing army. Aren't we glad to get out of the wilderness? Aren't we glad to get out of the wilderness? And at that moment, Grant received command, not from Lincoln. He had that command. He received command from his troops. They would follow him anywhere. There will be no turning back. Well, Grant wins the Civil War for the Union, becomes a great hero, uh, is asked to serve under Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. As a military person, he is very deferential. He tries at first the best he can to be faithful and loyal to Johnson, but he sees that Johnson is a disaster. Johnson is undoing everything that Lincoln had done. And so finally, in 1868, there's only one person that can run for the American presidency under the Republican banner. It's Grant. He's elected unanimously on the first ballot at the Republican convention. So let's say a little bit about Grant's presidency. Next slide, please, Beth. Well, first of all, I love the way he campaigns. <laughs> His father was a tanner. His father was a tanner. He said, I will never be a tanner. It's the most awful, bloody thing there is. But now Grant is a tanner. Grant and Colfax are tanners. Respectfully inform the people of the United States that they will engage in tanning old Democratic hides <laughs> until the third day of November, 1868. The senior member of the firm, having considerable experience in the business, thinks that by the help of the partner, all work will be done in satisfactory manner. References. The first reference is Simon Bolivar Buckner, the Confederate general who surrendered at Fort Donelson. The next is Robert E. Lee, who has surrendered at Appomattox. And the next is General John Pemberton, who surrendered at Vicksburg. This is Grant, the campaigner. We don't have much humor, do we, in our present campaigns? Next slide, please. One of the most remarkable persons who supported Grant was Frederick Douglass. The, the best 
the incredible biography of Frederick Douglass was published this past October by David Blight, B-L-I-G-H-T. It won the Pulitzer Prize. It won all kinds of other prizes. It's a remarkable story. Douglas had a somewhat ambivalent relationship with Lincoln, not so with Grant. He campaigned vigorously for Grant in both 1868 and 1872. He understood who Ulysses S. Grant was and believed that the freedmen and women could trust their future in the hands of this man. Let's go forward one more, Beth. Well, the episode that I think defines Grant's presidency more than any and this is one reason I think Grant is rising in the presidential polls, is that as the Republican Party, which had sponsored and passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, began to withdraw, you know, it's really hard, whether we're Christians or Americans or politicians, to keep doing things that are well worth doing. It gets hard to do it. And so after a while, the Republicans started to withdraw. And they said, well, let the South settle their own problems, settle their own problems. Their way was to put the freed men and women back into servitude. We would ultimately call it segregation. Segregation was as bad or worse than slavery in many ways, but not Ulysses S. Grant. One of the remarkable things that was his father was very anti-slavery, but he was not strongly anti-slavery as a young officer. He simply said to Lincoln, I will do whatever the policy is if that's the policy. So one of the things that I want to discover was where does this come from? And I think our, our great moments in, in our own lives come from both experience and ideas. And the further south that Grant got into this country, the more African Americans began to come into their, his lines seeking protection. And Grant began to understand, he had a great capacity for empathy. He began to empathize with these people, what they were going through. So as his own Republican Party stopped supporting the freedmen, he stepped forward. And he said, I will attack the Ku Klux Klan. They were the domestic terrorist organization of the 19th century. They were allied with the Democratic Party. They were the ones who were going to burn, kill, hang, Scores of Americans destroy their churches, destroy their schools, and Grant steps forward to use the power of the federal government and the power of the federal army. Abraham Lincoln had a wonderful analogy or story. He tells the story of two men who are wrestling each other. They're wrestling. And the more they wrestle, they wrestle out of each other's clothes into the clothes of the other. So he talks about the way the parties changed places in the 19th century. In the, 21st, in the 19th century, the Republican Party was the party of a strong central government. The Democratic Party was the party of states' rights. In the 21st century, the Republican Party is the party of states' rights, and the Democratic Party is the party of a strong central government. It's ironic how this has happened. Grant is the leader of a strong central government. And this slide, this cartoon by Thomas Nast, who is called the father of our political cartoons, tells the whole story. On one side is the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, shaking hands with another guy who is the White League, that was another terrorist organization, and over the heads of this African-American husband and wife, father and mother, it says, worse than slavery. And they are cuddling in their arms their dead or dying child. And Nast became such a supporter of Grant because he understood that Grant would stand up for the rights of African Americans. So as Grant is elected for a second term, uh, a group of African Americans come from Philadelphia to thank him for what he has done for them. And as he meets them and talks with them, I will find this momentarily here. They thank him for what he has done for their race. And he says to them those remarkable words. <clears throat> In your desire to attain all the rights of citizens, I fully sympathize. I underline that word sympathy. I think that's a great quality we should look for in leaders. He spelled out what he meant. A ticket on a railroad or other conveyance should entitle you to all that it does other men. 
I wish that every voter of the United States should stand in all respects alike. It must come. Friends, it would be 90 years before it came. 90 years before John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and Lyndon Baines Johnson. Grant was the last American president to stand up for the rights of African Americans. And this is why his stock is rising. But it's also why it fell. For what happened after the Civil War was what was called the lost cause. Within one year, the South, its generals, and its politicians began to propagate what they called the lost cause. The lost cause was that the best cause lost. The lost cause of Christianity. The lost cause of chivalry. And the only reason we lost was that we were overwhelmed by this large Union army and by the industrial might of the North and by that butcher grant. By that butcher grant. And so that lost cause went on. It's, it's, the, it's all the movie Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind is the story of the lost cause. It went all the way up to the civil rights movement. The lost cause, the best cause, was overwhelmed by this northern might. So Grant fell with that. You don't celebrate someone who stands up for the rights of freedmen as the Jim Crow laws are coming into this country. So that's why only in recent years have we been able to say, let's, let's take a fresh look at this man. Who really was he? Well, Grant retires from the presidency in 1860, 1876. He could have run for a third term. There were no limitations. Julia wanted him to run for a third term. He was tired. He wanted to travel. For him, travel was education. So he sets out on a tour, which, what he thinks will only be Great Britain and Europe. He arrives with Julia and their youngest son in Liverpool. And to his great surprise, thousands of people are there to greet him. They think of him as a great hero. He doesn't think of himself that way. He's just a private citizen. And everywhere he goes, people want to hear him speak. This just surprises him. He travels across the English Channel to, uh, to Europe. And on the 4th of July, 1878, he is asked to speak at a 4th of July celebration by the American consul in of Hamburg, Germany. And the American consul starts out and he says, I want to toast Ulysses S. Grant. He is the great general. Everybody still called him general, even though he's president. He is the great general. He has won the Civil War. He has, he has. And Grant, who did not like the public speech, said, sir, sir, if I might interrupt, I, I did not win the Civil War. I didn't win the Civil War. If the Civil War could be won by one person, it would be a war not worth winning. If you want to toast this afternoon, would you please toast the young men who came from their villages and their farms? They are the ones who won the Civil War. Wow! Ulysses S. Grant, always giving credit to others. He travels on. His son is investing his money. It's going well, so he travels on to India. He's not particularly happy with the British are ruling the Indians. And at one point, they wanted to get on top of a of an elephant and ride into the historic city of Benares. He doesn't want to do that. So one of the men traveling with him, his former secretary of the Navy, a man by the name of Bori, is quite ill. So he says to Bori, why don't you get up on top of the elephant? So the elephant comes in and people think they're cheering Grant and Bori is waving and everything. <laughs> and Grant is just kind of walking slowly. So, so much Grant. He gets to China. <clears throat> And he says to the Chinese, he said, do not let the Europeans tell you what to do. That's what they're doing in India. We will never, as Americans, tell you what to do. You have your own culture and your own values, and I respect that. The leader of China says, we're involved in a great dispute with Japan over a set of islands. Would you be willing to be the mediator in that dispute between China and Japan? And Grant says, well, okay, I'll give it a try. So he does mediate that. And I, you learn a lot of things after you write a book. I learned after I wrote a book, someone told me this, that in 1912, 1912, a group of Japanese diplomats came to the United States. And when they were asked in Washington, what do you want to do? They said, we want to go to Grant's tomb. He's a great hero in our country. And we want to lay flowers at Grant's tomb because we still remember him for what he did for Japan 
and what he did for China and how he respected us and didn't try to tell us what to do. Well, Grant, there's no presidential pensions in Grant's day. That doesn't come until after FDR under the time of Harry S. Truman. So how is Grant going to make a living? They've given him a home in Galena. He can't live in a small town. He settles into New York. His son, his second son, Ulysses, called Buck, the Buckeye State, was where he was born in Ohio, goes into Wall Street and seems to be doing quite well. And so he says to his father, why don't you give me all of the money that you have and we'll invest it in this company and we'll do well. And the leader of the company was a kind of young buck coming up, you know, until one day, until one day, they discovered it was all a Ponzi scheme, all a Ponzi scheme. And the young leader had never put a penny of his own money into the fund. He had taken Grant's money and Grant's son's money and did a deal with the banker. They would switch the books from morning to night so the inspectors could never find out what was really going on. And Grant came home to Julia and between the two of them they had $131, $131, all wiped out. So that summer he went to Long Branch, New Jersey where they had a summer cottage. He bit into a peach in June of that year and felt a terrible sense of pain his next door neighbor said, well, let me have a doctor look at you. Well, you should see your own doctor. Well, his own doctor spent three months of the year in Europe. So in October, he went and saw the doctor. The doctor did a biopsy, cancer, terminal cancer. Grant said he would never write his memoirs because he thought memoirs were egotistical. They were settling scores. Do you know that during Dwight Eisenhower's eight years, there was only one memoir ever written by a member of his cabinet? Would you like to count how many memoirs have been written in George Bush's cabinet, in Barack Obama's cabinet, already in Donald Trump's cabinet? But now Grant had to write his memoirs if he was going to provide for Julia because he was dying. Well, the Century Magazine, large magazine of that day, offered him $10,000 to write his memoirs. Mark Twain heard about this. Mark Twain called himself Grant Intoxicated. He absolutely loved and admired this man. He rushed over to Grant's house and he said, $10,000? That's what they'd pay an unknown Comanche to write his memoirs. <laughs> I'll tell you what, he said, I'll publish your memoirs. I'm establishing a publishing company through my son-in-law. What are they offering you? 10% royalty? That was pretty standard. He said, I'll give you 70% of the total proceeds the book. And so in those days, books were sold by subscription. You'd have people traveling across the country knocking on your door. We used to answer our door. <laughs> and you'd buy a book that way. So Grant set out to write his memoirs. And Beth, let's go to, well, I guess we forgot this one. This is the burdens of Grant as president. Everything's on his back. Thomas Nast again. But now we see Grant writing his memoirs. Mark Twain wants to assist him, and so he hires a sonographer that Grant will be able to dictate his memoirs. But by January of 1865, Grant can no longer speak. And so Grant begins to communicate with little slips of paper. And I've held those slips of paper in my hands at the Library of Congress. One of them reads, with every, every note I write, I know I'm driving another nail into my coffin. And the doctor said he's only living to complete his memoirs. Well, on March 30th, 1865, the New York Times broadcast, General Grant is dying. Newspaper reporters were all around his home at East 62nd Street. It appeared that this was the end. He was suffocating. He couldn't sleep on a bed anymore. He had to sleep on two chairs sitting up. He had lost all kinds of weight. He was dying. This seemed to be the final death knell for Grant. But somehow he survived. And Mark Twain wrote in his notebook three days later these remarkable words. General Grant is still living this morning. Many a person between the two oceans lay hours awake last night, listening for the booming of the fire bells that should speak to the nation's simultaneous voice and tell of its calamity. He specified. The bell strokes are to be 30 seconds apart, and there will be 63 
the general's age, they will be striking in every town of the United States at the same moment. You see, Grant was not simply appreciated, he was loved. People loved this man for who he was. So what do we say in conclusion? Grant is due for an upgrade. <laughs> what we're attempting to say here in the writing of biographies, I think we do this because we wish to present examples for, of the past as we think of the present. Biographies are also mirrors by which we look at the present and say, how does it measure up to those who have been our leaders of the past? So this is a remarkable person whose life has, is more than a general. He's the president of the United States. He's the first president who travels across the world for two and a half years. He writes the most remarkable memoir in American letters. It is unparalleled. It has never, ever been out of print. I commend you to read his memoirs, which have come out in the last two years in two beautiful annotated editions. By annotated, I mean it helps explain what a particular word phrase means. So, enjoyed giving you an opportunity to hear more about Grant. I'll conclude and we'll have questions and answers. Who would like to take the first opportunity to ask a question? Let's try that one first before I forget. Okay. Well, first of all, early, very early in his career, Grant was under the command of Fremont. And so when he went into St. Louis, he tried to see Fremont, and he was mightily surprised that Fremont had rented this gigantic, opulent home, and he had all these people guarding him around, and he, this is exactly the opposite of the way Grant would operate. So he was really turned off by this. Having said that, Fremont actually wrote a letter of commendation for Grant in Grant's early weeks in the military, commending what he saw. So they had that relationship. <coughs> Part of the question is, how did Grant relate to his subordinates? They enjoyed working with him because he was not a micromanager, as we would say today. He gave them their head. When George C. Meade had won the Battle of Gettysburg, and then was severely criticized for not following up Robert E. Lee's retreat and was being investigated by the members of Congress. Meade wrote to his wife and said, well, Grant is now assumed in command. I'm sure he will remove me and he will replace me with someone from the West. I'm resigned to that. He wrote his wife a couple of weeks later, I can't believe it. <laughs> Grant has told me that he wants to keep me. He, he's supporting what I'm doing. He's affirming whom I am. I can't quite believe it. And this story was repeated again and again and again. People who fell out of favor for what they had failed to do. Grant's first stroke of leadership was, I believe in you. You know more about Chattanooga than I do, or more about Knoxville than I do. And what this did for these people in terms of, you know, he was also very quick to say, I'm not going to keep you in my command because you're not measuring up. And it's often not only they didn't measure up tactfully, tactfully, they didn't measure up in terms of character. Their character didn't measure up. Reconstruction is that period right after the Civil War. You could argue that it maybe started before the end of the Civil War. Goes all the way up to 1876 when Rutherford B. Hayes is elected. <clears throat> kind of a dark horse candidate. When his campaigning says, I will remove the federal troops from the South. So this, I would argue, is probably the, one of the last and most misunderstood epics in American history. Even in the last several years, the National Park Service has begun to redo its signage to begin to lift up some of the terrible race riots that took place in Memphis and New Orleans, which they had completely just backed away from. And they're starting to say, let's really tell the story of Reconstruction. Yes, as you suggest, there were carpetbaggers who came in. There were people who ruled who were not very efficient. But I think that undermines the larger story <clears throat> of the attempt, and Ulysses S. Grant is critical here, of defending the rights of African Americans. And one of the most interesting things was we had, by the end of the war, 180,000 African American troops in the Union Army. What I never thought about for a while was they enlisted last. So by the time the war was ending, the white troops were ending their 
assignment and commitment. So in the first couple of years of Reconstruction, 36% of the Union Army was African-American. Well, people in the South were not going to tolerate African-American soldiers. They, I don't care what uniform you're wearing, they attacked the African-American soldiers. They did everything to destroy the African-American Union soldiers. That's another part of Reconstruction. Yes? You're right, I glossed over it. <laughs> it's a complicated story. And one of the things I discovered was that what happened in the 1876 election was that Samuel Tilden was leading the election. He was the Democrat. And he was leading by, what, 20 or 21 electoral votes. And Rutherford B. Hayes had to win every single one of the remaining contested electoral votes to win the election by one electoral vote. So Tilden's crew thought, well, Grant's going to play a bad role here. He stepped forward to say to both sides, including the Democratic side, I'm here to help. I'm here to mediate. I'm here not to take sides. I'm here to help us find what is the fairest way forward. But yes, you were right in the sense that that was the beginning as the, that's the final withdrawal of the Republican Party from the South, which allowed Jim Crow. There were sort of black law, laws coming in that were all racist laws, but it was never codified until the 1880s, really 1890s. You couldn't ride in the same train car. You couldn't sit in the same place. You couldn't use the same restaurant. And this all came in and the Republicans stepped back from it. Grant would never have stepped back from it. Yes, we'll, we'll start here and then go here. <laughs> um, you mentioned David Eisenhower. Yes. Um, the two, his dad's presidency was 90 years after yes. Grant. It seems to me there are some similarities. Would you like to talk about that? Ah, the comment is David Eisenhower, I mentioned David Eisenhower, are there similarities between Eisenhower and Grant, if you ever get a chance to go to the uh, Army and Navy Club in Washington, D.C., as you enter the front door in the main parlor, there's two phenomenal portraits, two men looking at each other. Grant is looking at Eisenhower, and Eisenhower is looking at Grant. And Eisenhower had a tremendous appreciation for Ulysses S. Grant. He also was not a great public speaker. And he has now been also revised. He's now in the top five of American presidents because we've recognized that he appeared for many of us to be kind of a do-nothing guy. Oh, we had this young, vibrant John F. Kennedy who comes along. Now we're taking a fresh look, and Eisenhower's stock is going way, way, way up because he got things done without boasting about it, without taking credit. One more aspect of this is Eisenhower had a terribly volatile temper. Terrible temper. He understood it. One day when his younger, older brothers were going out trick-or-treating or something, he beat his fists into a bloody pulp on a tree and his mother went up to his room afterwards. She gave him a Bible verse and she said, Ike, Dwight, if you cannot control your temper, you will never control anything. So what I admire about him was he was very aware of his own failings. There's nothing wrong with being aware of our own short-sightedness, our own dark side. And he struggled during World War II to not allow that temper to come out as he led the American and international armies to victory. Yes, sir. Did you discover anything about Grant's uh, prayer life or his, his uh, walk with God at all? Yes, I didn't say enough about that. The pastor where Grant served in Galena, Illinois, was a young man named John Hale Vincent. When I have an opportunity to speak to ministers or speak to seminaries, I wish to say ministers don't have the same kind of public persona today that they had 50 or 100 years ago. They are so important. They never get the headlines. It's the persons within their congregation who might be this person or that person. So Vincent was this young man, and 29 years old, and he and Grant struck up this amazing friendship. I believe that Vincent became Grant's spiritual mentor. So. Vincent visited Grant during the Civil War. He came to City Point to visit him. And then after the Civil War, Vincent became the founder of the great Chautauqua movement. If you've been to the New York Chautauqua, Vincent is the founder of that. And he thought to himself in the second summer, 
They'd had the first summer with six weeks. It's a, it was a Chautauqua for public school teachers who were on vacation in the summertime who would become Sunday school teachers. He invited Grant to come. If I'm going to do anything with this, we're out in the backwoods here, south of Buffalo, and Grant accepted the invitation, even though he was deeply mired in all the scandals of his second term. So 25,000 people came because Grant came. And so he was there in that presence. You can't get everything into the book. I had to take 125 pages out of this book. What I took out was, at the beginning of the second term, Grant wrote to every member of his cabinet, and he said, I want to invite all of you to come to church with me uh, on this coming Sunday. I want us to pray together before we begin our second term. We have a great preacher. You will love his preaching. Would you all join me? The Methodists, far before the National Cathedral, were the first denomination to build a national church in Washington. Grant was a member of the Board of Trustees. Julia was in charge of paying off the debt. They did so in a dramatic Christmas Eve service where she burned the debt, and they were steadfast members of that church. You won't find that in any other Grant biography. <laughs> yes, do I know you? My wife, Cynthia. <laughs> Question? <laughs> okay. Okay, okay, okay. I will. Again, you learn things after you write this book. Uh, I'm going to be privileged to give a lecture at Oxford in October. And Cynthia and I have both been long fascinated with Winston Churchill. So when Winston Churchill was 13 years old, I think it was 1887, he told his parents that he wanted one special gift for Christmas, or was it his birthday? Birthday that year. He wanted a copy of Grant's memoirs. He wanted a copy of Grant's memoirs. Churchill was fascinated by the Civil War, was an incredible fan of Ulysses S. Grant, and once upon a time, he wrote to Franklin D. Roosevelt, and he said to Roosevelt, do you not remember what Grant said? There will be no turning back. <laughs> so yes, fascinating to find this link between Winston Churchill and Ulysses S. Grant. Yes? Um, Cameron, um, wasn't his first love, though, when he was at West Point, didn't he want to be a historian? He, wa well, he wanted to be a teacher. teacher. He wanted to, yeah. Well, he wanted to be a mathematics teacher. He, what happened, and this says so much about parenting in the 19th century, it's not our parenting. He didn't want to go to West Point. His father understood that West Point was free. <laughs> and it was the only one of three engineering schools in the United States. And you didn't have any five-year compulsory service after West Point. So lots of the graduates, including George McClellan, became engineers and made a lot of money. But he said to his father, if you think I should do this, I will. Can you imagine your 17-year-old daughter or granddaughter or grandson saying, if you think I should do this, I will? <laughs> so he went to West Point, but he wasn't quite sure that this is what he wanted to do. And even when he got out and was starting to serve first at Jeff uh, Jefferson Barracks in St. Louis, he was still corresponding with professors at West Point. Maybe I could get a job teaching mathematics. So he wasn't settled on his vocation. Yeah, yeah, yes. You think France was lucky that his early campaigning was in the West rather than in the East? Oh. And was out from under McClellan and Burnside and Halleck? And oh, very good question. Do I think, never thought about that quite before, do I think Grant was lucky that his early campaigning was in the West and he was not under McClellan and Burnside and Halleck he actually did get under Halleck after he won the battle at Shiloh, was surprised on the first day, and he couldn't sleep in the hospital because they were cutting off all these limbs. He couldn't stand it. So Sherman found him standing all night long under a tree with a pouring down rain coming. And Sherman said to him, man, we had our tails whipped. He said, yeah, but we'll lick him tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But we'll lick him tomorrow. And that's what they did. But then Halleck, who was the chief of staff in Washington, was disappointed with Grant. And he said, I'm going to come out and take command of the army. 
and I'll make you second in command. And after their slow march towards Corinth, Grant came to the realization that, you know, this is not working, and he was ready to resign. And William Tecumseh Sherman, his closest friend, that was another piece of the puzzle. You couldn't find men more opposite than William Tecumseh Sherman, a kind of firebrand, you know. And Grant, this quiet, soft-speaking man, and Sherman rushes over to Grant. He says, you told me not to resign when they said I was insane, and I'm not letting you resign. You can't do this. Your day will come. And he talked Grant out of resigning. Grant had put together all of his correspondence. He was packing his luggage. He was getting ready to go. And Sherman said, you can't leave. Your day will come. Yeah. Friendship is so important. Well, maybe we've gone far enough. Thank you so much. Ron, I think you've done a marvelous job of walking the narrow pathway here. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Thank you all for honoring the names of uh, Grant and uh, people around him by being present, honoring the exploration of a good American history and uh, how character and faith integrate. And I hope you have a wonderful evening. If you want to sign up for a book, there's still a sign-up sheet in the back. Uh, and uh, they would love to take your names and be able to make that happen for you. So God bless you all. Thanks for being here. <laughs>